Last week, we considered how David's unrepentant sin led to a chain of events resulting in a greater and greater sinfulness due to that unrepentance. What started out as a failure to fulfill his kingly duties and leading his troops into battle eventually leads to adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, and the innocent deaths of a number of David's troops. So how does God feel about David's actions, what David had done? Well, we ended last week on 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. The end of that verse reads, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Certainly, God did not approve of what David had done, and God was upset with what David had done. As our passage opens, at least nine months have transpired from the events that are recorded in chapter 11 to what takes place in chapter 12. How do we know that? Well, the answer is because in chapter 12, verse 14, David's child by Bathsheba has already been born. So at least nine months have transpired from David's act of sin to David's repentance. At least nine months, perhaps a year. And all that time, David still did not confess his sin and he was unrepentant. One might wonder what was going on in the heart and mind of David in that nine-month period of time. Well, the reality is we don't have to wonder. We are told in Psalm 32, David's thought process and what was taking place in that particular period of time. And in a few weeks from now, on a Sunday night, uh, we're going to be spending some good bit of time in Psalm 32 to try to ascertain David's uh, process of seeking forgiveness and repentance. So what does God do since David was still unrepentant? What does God do? Well, first of all, God exercises great patience and will lead David to confession of sin and repentance. David is under conviction in this period of time, but does not confess and does not repent. Psalm 32 tells us that he's under conviction, for it says, For when I kept silence, my bones waxed old from my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up like the heat of the summer. David was under conviction, but he did not confess. He did not repent. So this morning we want to look at the events surrounding David's confession of sin. David's confession of sin. What's the process? Well, first of all, God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David concerning his sin, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. It should be noted that the events that take place in chapter 12 are initiated by God and demonstrate God's great grace in dealing with David. God sent Nathan to David. And God uses a story to open David's eyes to see his own sin. 
So let's take a look at this story that God uses to bring David to understand his sinfulness. In this story, there's a man who is rich, and there's a man who is poor, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The disparity of the riches of these two are described, verses 2 and 3. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. So there's a great disparity in their riches and their, and their poverty. The poor man had a great concern for this one lamb that he possessed. The poor man had a relationship with the lamb over an extended period of time, verse 3. For it says, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had brought, bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. The poor man nurtured and cared for the lamb. <clears throat> it's found in the words in verse 3. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. So he loved, he carried, he nourished this lamb. And the poor man showed love to the lamb and had a great emotional attachment to it. For it says at the end of verse 3, and it was like a daughter to him. So this lamb was like one of the family. That's how precious the lamb was to this man. The rich man took the man's lamb rather than one of his own. Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. That's the story. Now we have David's response. And most likely this story was brought to David for a judgment. For one of the things that the kings did was they were to hear crimes, hear offenses, and pronounce judgment. And so this story is told to David so that David would make a declaration as to what should occur. What, what's the right thing to happen in this instance? Well, David becomes outraged at the conduct of the rich man, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Literally, David was enraged by what the man had done. He thought it was terrible, despicable. It was awful. So David pronounces judgment on the rich man. End of verse 5. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. So David's pronouncement is, this person should be put to death for having done such a thing as taking this man's one and only lamb. David then describes the fault in the rich man. Verse 6 says, And he will restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And, and now here's the ultimate fault, because he had no pity. He had no pity. The rich man did not think of the effect that this taking of the lamb would have. He didn't think it through. He had no compassion, no concern for the well-being of this poor man. So his heart was cruel. 
Nathan then confronts David over David's own sinfulness, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. In this story, David, you are the rich man. Well, how was David the man? I'd like to point out a few things in this story. First, like in the story, David had taken Bathsheba, the one wife of Uriah, rather than David having a relationship with one of his own many wives. So he took what did not belong to him. When this man had but one wife, David had many wives. Like in the story, Uriah had a tender relationship to Bathsheba. He had cared for her. He had provided for her. He had literally held her in his arms. David had no such relationship to Bathsheba. David's only relationship to Bathsheba was one of lust. He did not even know her. Didn't know her name. So he acquired. Didn't care. Didn't care about her. Didn't care about her name, really. Didn't care when he found out that she was married. Didn't care when he found out that she was the granddaughter of Hithbel. We looked at all those things last week. He had no pity. No concern. He was indifferent. He did not think about the effect of his actions upon Uriah when he had a sexual relationship with her. He did not care about violating Bathsheba and the emotional stress that it placed upon her and the way in which she's going to lament her husband after he dies. He was so heartless and so cruel that he actually arranged for the death of Uriah. He was without pity. He was out without compassion. He was the man. So I'd like to stop right here and just ask the question, what are we to learn about David's outrage. The fact that he's so angered by what this man has done and determines that this person should be put to death and yet in his own life is unrepentant, in his own life hasn't come to the grips with what he has done and has not confessed it before God. What are we to learn from that? Well, first of all, it is easier to see the sin in others, even when the sin is lesser than our own, than it is to see our own sin. Let me say that again. It's easier to see the sin in others, even when that sin is lesser than our own sin. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you measure, it shall be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? The speck in the eye of the, poor, of the, of the rich man was that he did not have pity upon a man and his lamb. The log in David's eye was that he didn't have pity upon human beings. He didn't have pity upon a man 
and his wife. He did not care about what he had done, but readily saw the wrong in what this rich man had done in taking the lamb. David could not see his wrong. There's a lesson to be learned, and that is how often it is that we find fault in others when we have even greater faults of our own. That's how deceptive sin can be. Second, we learn that when we see the sin in others, it should be a self of source of self-condemnation. Let me say that again. When we see the sin in others, it ought to be a source of self-condemnation. David is outraged by what the rich man had done, but at this point is indifferent to his own sin. David saw that the man who had taken the lamb of this poor man was worthy of death. But David failed to see his own worthiness of death. How much more David should have seen himself as worthy of death for what he had done. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 it reads, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. It's talking about how we know that we are all sinners before God. Romans 2 tells us how we know that we are sinners before God, how we are without excuse. For it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that we are sinners because we find fault in others for doing certain things when, in fact, we do the very same things. Now, you apply this to David, and David's condemnation of this man was actually self-condemning. It shows that David knows what is the right thing to do. What is the wrong thing to do? And David chose to do the wrong thing. So now let's look at the fault that God finds in David. The fault that God finds in David. First, to help us understand why David did what he did. First, David failed to see his riches. Namely, all that God had done for him. In this story, there's a rich man. And David is this rich man. And in this story, we come to, to realize that at the heart of David's sinfulness was that he focused upon what he did not have as opposed to focusing upon what he did have. And there's a great lesson to be learned in that for many, many sins have that very same starting point. That is, that we focus upon what we don't have as opposed to focusing upon what we do have. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, 
God had made this incredible garden for Adam and Eve to live in. And God provided for them abundantly, wonderfully, gloriously, and freely. And God said to them, you may eat of every tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had all of this fruit. They had all of these trees. They had an abundance of provision. You can eat from any of these trees. But one. One tree you can't eat from. And that becomes their focus. They become obsessed with the one tree that they can't eat from. Failing to take into account all the freedom that they possessed and all the bounty and all the goodness. So in our passage, David fails to recognize his bounty. All that God had done for him. So there's a recounting of what God has done for David, how David is rich. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. That's the first blessing. That's the first riches of David. Secondly, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Thirdly, verse 8, And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. Into your arms. It's the same phrase for the relationship that the poor man had to his lamb. It used to lie in his arms. David had many wives. He did not reflect upon that. Just as the rich man had many lambs. He focused on the wife he did not have as the rich man focused on the lamb that was not his own. David failed to focus on Saul's being removed as king for his disobedience. And yet, David is going to be disobedient to God. Verse 8, And gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And then at the end of verse 8, and he says, And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. David, I gave you all of this. You're rich. You're rich. But you wanted the one thing you could not have. David showed a lack of appreciation for all that God had done for him. David failed to put into account all that was he all that he was putting at risk but here is the most important element for us to take away this morning and that is that david failed to see that his sin was ultimately against god for notice verse 9 why have you despised the word of the lord why have you despised the word of the lord despise is to, to treat with with re, without respect 
to be disrespectful, to deem it unworthy, not to follow it, a failure to take it into consideration, to disregard it, to choose not to follow it. David had not followed the word of God. Certainly, God's word was clear about adultery. God's word was clear about murder. But he totally disregarded it. He did not treat it with respect. He did not submit to God's word. And failing to submit to God's word, of course, he failed to submit to God. He also failed to cherish the promises that God had made to him. Secondly, David failed to see the depth of his sin. Notice verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Now this next statement, to do what is evil. To do what is evil. A strong word. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a matter of poor judgment. This was not simply a failure on his part. What David had done was evil. It was wicked. It was horrible. It was irrehensible. It was was terrible. Up until this point, David had been rationalizing away what he had done. Up until this point, David did not realize the depth of his sin. Perhaps he thought, perhaps he justified the death of Uriah by saying, well, I didn't use my own hands. I I didn't really cause the death of Uriah. I just simply arranged for him to be put into battle. And it was the Ammonites that killed him. I didn't kill him. Well, we're going to see that God says David killed him. But if we're not careful, we can rationalize our sin. We can begin to justify it. We can get to the place where it becomes almost acceptable. At least we can bring it down to a level where it isn't wicked. (laughs) It isn't evil. It's poor judgment. No, no. It was evil. So we have to be on guard against rationalizing our sin or we will not confess it as we should. Next, David failed to see that his sin was not and would not be hidden from God. Was not and would not be hidden from God. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? And then this little phrase, in his sight, in his sight. In God's sight, God saw it all. It was done in secret, but it was not out of God's sight. Notice verse 9. Why be despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And now there's this declaration. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, you have done this. You have done this. Who told God that? 
Who outed David? Who prayed and said, God, I, I think you ought to know what David did. Did Joab do that? Did Bathsheba do that? Who told on David? Nobody told on David. God knew it. God knew it. God saw it. God was every bit aware of it from day one. God knew it all. And God knows all about us. He knows our down-sitting, our uprising, Psalm 139. He knows when we stand up, he knows when we sit down. Psalm 139 says that he knows our thought even afar off. Meaning, the God knows what we think before we think it. God knows what we think before we do. God knew what was in the heart of David the very moment he looked at Bathsheba taking the bath. He knew where it was headed. He knew it was in the heart of David. Nobody had to explain it to him. Nobody had to tell him. He knew it. He knew it. He knew it. David hadn't come to grips with any of that. David's only starting down this journey. And so God uses a story to help David understand. So why does God use this story of a, a man and a sheep in order to bring conviction to David? Well, I'd submit to you because often, 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 conviction of sin begins with Key word begins with understanding what we have done and the way it hurts others. That's just the beginning. But for most people, that's where it starts. Knowing what I have done and how it hurts others. But we're going to see and we see here, and tonight we're going to be in Psalm 51, which is written out of this experience of David confessing his sin. And there's just so much more light shed upon this, this, cha this chapter in Psalm 51. I hope you'll come back tonight. But you see, David has to move beyond realizing what he has done to Uriah and what he has done to Bathsheba. And as awful as all of that is, it's not just about Bathsheba, and it's not just about Uriah. It's about God. It's about what David had done to God. And it's important for us to realize when we sin, it's not just about the harm that we do to others. And that's usually where it starts, and that's usually what brings us to our knees as we think about the effects, the fallout of what we have done to others. But it can never stop there. That's not true repentance. That's not true confession. <laughs> we, 
We have to come to grips with what we have done against God. How we have despised his word, how we have violated what he says. What we have done is evil in his sight. If we understand that the true nature of sin is against God, and ultimately against God, then we begin to understand why it is that it is sinful for two consenting adults to have an illicit relationship to each other. It helps us to understand why it is sin when seemingly it doesn't even seem to affect anybody else. It doesn't seem to have any other people that are being hurt. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, and as long as both parties agree, then what's wrong with it? Answer? If it violates God's word, it's sin. It's sin against God. And as we work our way through this, and I I can't detail it all, I'm telling you there are significant issues associated with the fact that it's a violation of God's word and it's against God. It shows the lack of appreciation. It shows a lack of sense of duty, of responsibility before God. Sin is ultimately against God, and we can never forget that. And if we keep that in mind, we will understand the nature of sin in the way in which it needs to be understood, in the way in which it will preserve us. Next, God reveals to David the consequences of his sin. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Consequence number one. Consequence number two, I will raise up evil against you out of your house. Consequence number three, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. I'm not going to go into any explanation of this at this time. These consequences will be played out in great detail in the remaining chapters of 2 Samuel. As we work our way through this book, we're going to see how all of these things come to pass and all of the fruit and, and all the hardship and all the difficulty that's associated with us. We're, we're going to unpack it. Just enough to say this morning there are consequences to sin. Consequences to sin. Next, David acknowledges his sinfulness. 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. This simple statement, I have sinned against the Lord. This seems like such a flippant response. David says, I've sinned. Okay, all's good, it's over, done. David acknowledged, he said, I sinned. I'm back tonight. Come back tonight. We're going to look at depth 
at what David says about his sin, Psalm 51. It's a psalm that depicts David's confession. This is just a summary statement. I'm not going to do it all this morning because we're going to look at it in depth tonight. His confession of sin. What does it mean to truly confess sin? That's tonight, Psalm 51, written out of this experience. God forgives David's sinfulness. Verse 13, Lord also has put away your sin. Lord has put away your sin. Remember, David had said that the rich man who took the poor man's lamb should die. Should die. How much more should David have died for what he had done? The penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was death. The penalty for murder was death. David should have died. End of verse 13, you shall not die. You shall not die. I put this sin away. I'm going to stop here because I will pick it up in two weeks. Next week is Celebration Sunday, and we'll be in a different passage to be sure. And then uh, the following week we'll be back, and we're going to look at this, and I'm going to pick it up at this spot. I'm going to deal with all the difficulties and hardships and and the problems of the remaining part of this chapter. But I stop here. And in conclusion, I just want you to think about a few things. First of all, conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. It often starts with a hard heart starting to be softened. A heart that was pitiless. A heart that did not care about what their sin meant to others. How our own sinful desires, all we're thinking about is us. What we want, what we think is going to make us happy, what is going to fulfill us. And we are hard-hearted to what our sin does to others. Our spouses, our children, our church, other people. Confession and repentance starts with a heart that begins to realize what they have done, what I have done, how I've hurt my spouse, how I've hurt my children, how I've hurt the person I've sinned against, how I've hurt the church, how, how I've hurt, how I've hurt, how I've hurt, how I've hurt. That's the natural progression. That's how it usually works. But I tell you, it can't stop there. For true confession of sin is a recognition not only of what I've done to others, but ultimately what I've done to God and his reputation. What I've got done to God in representing him, David was to be the king. We saw a number of weeks ago, that he was to administer equity and justice. David had failed miserably in what God wanted him to do, in what he was supposed to be before God. 
Ultimately, people, we need to come to grips with what our sin does in destroying God's reputation. If that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. The sense of hypocrisy. Forfeiting usefulness. To realize that my sin has a far greater depth to it than just, and when I say just, I'm not minimizing pain and suffering that people experience because of other people's sin. But I'm trying to elevate it to the sense that we understand that it's more than that. More than that. It's against the Lord. It's against the Lord. We must keep in mind that God knows all about our sin. He sees it. He's aware of it. No one has to tell him. No one has to disclose it. No one has to out you. Never think that your sin is hidden from the Lord. Or the nine months have passed. Doesn't matter. Because God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is kind. But he knows. But he knows. God in his grace, grace brings conviction of sin. David was not seeking God. God was seeking David. David wasn't seeking to be restored. God was seeking to restore David. God sends Nathan. God brings David to place of forgiveness and repentance. God seeks us, and God brings us to places of repentance. For God is good. He will not leave us to our own accord. There are consequences to sin. We will talk about that in more measure in the weeks to come. The great takeaway we should be quick to repent of our sin. Taking chapters 11 and 12 as a whole, if you were here last week, you hopefully will be reminded that I pointed out how David could have repented and broken the chain at so many places along the line. How David's failure to go out with his troops, if, if David would have just gone to battle like he was supposed to have done, none of this would have ever happened. What seemed like an inconsequential decision, seemed like it didn't matter whether David was at the battle or not because they won, actually had great consequence. When he looked and saw a woman taking a bath, I said, you can prevent a you can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. Charles Spurgeon said that. He could have looked, he could have seen, he could have repented. Ask God to forgive him for the lustful thought and it had been all over. He sent and he inquired. He heard that she had a husband. He heard that the husband was one of his own warriors, one of his mighty men. He could have repented. He sent for her. Having 
gotten her into the palace. He could have stopped and not laid with her, sent her home, but he didn't. When he finds out she's pregnant, he sends for Uriah, tries to make it look like it's his child. That doesn't work. He could have repented. He could have stopped. He could have asked God for forgiveness. He could have confessed it to Uriah. He continues on. He has him murdered. He goes on and on and on and on. And now for nine months, he's still unrepentant until this day. This day, when Nathan is sent to him, finally, finally he repents. Be quick. Be quick to repent. When we sin, keep our accounts short with God. Confess not only our acts, but our thoughts, our desires. God said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you committed adultery in your heart. If we confess our thoughts, our actions will be preserved. Keep a short reign on our sins. Repent and repent quickly. Think about what our sins do to others. But don't stop there. Think about what our sins do to God's reputation and our opportunities to serve him. Thank God. Thank God. These are forgiving God. And yes, he forgives. He forgives. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that we can have peace with God. Thank you for your patience and long-suffering with us. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you give us a hatred for sin. I pray that you would give us a, a concern not only for loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and loving our fellow man, but for loving you. And may we be concerned not only what our sins do to others, but may we be concerned about what our sins do to you. O oh Lord, as the psalmist said, search us, O oh Lord, know our thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. O oh Lord, we are blind. So often we are blind to our own sinfulness, our own thoughts, our own desires, our, our own lack of compassion, our own selfishness. Lord, reveal it to us. And when you show it to us, help us to repent quickly. Guard us from the great transgressions. Keep us from the great moral failures. Help us, O oh God. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. And Lord, I just thank you that today you offer to anyone who is sitting here, no matter what they have done, an opportunity to experience your forgiveness through Christ who paid it all. 
Lord, if there's anyone here who's standing in need of forgiveness, we ask that they'd cry out to you. Acknowledge their sin. And you indeed will forgive them on the basis of Christ. And we thank you for that precious promise. In Jesus' name, amen.